0: Morning, everyone. Thank you, Sarah. Sarah's already referred to the fact that we're we're gonna be looking at Daniel chapter nine. And so let's let's take time to read the entire chapter. It's page 894 in the Red Pew Bibles. Uh, And as we begin to read this, you will notice, especially for those who've been following this series, that there's a definite change in mood. There's a definite change in content, at least for the most part. In Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8, we were, as we've said, in dreamland. We were in the world of apocalyptic visions. And in Daniel chapter 10, we will be back there, and we will be there right up until the end of the book. But Daniel name's different. Daniel is engaged in Bible study and prayer, which at one level shouldn't really surprise us because... Throughout this entire book, Daniel is characterized as a man of prayer, not only in response to specific situations like when he needs to interpret a king's dream, but we also know that Daniel had an established pattern, an established rhythm of prayer daily, three times. Every single day, it appears, he got down on his knees, and at the beginning of Daniel chapter 9, he's back in that place. But what's really interesting and relevant is that it's prayer sparked by and prompted by his reading of God's word. As Daniel engages with scripture, he prays in response to that engagement. And if nothing else this morning, other than shame, if nothing else this morning, that, that in itself is a great insight, and example to take away. Because reading God's word And allowing it to fuel your prayer life is such an important discipline. It really is. And although I'll say more about this in a moment, let me pause again right at the start of this and, and ask you a relatively personal question during this period of Lent. How regular is that pattern in your life? How often this week Have you read Scripture and allowed it to stimulate your conversation with God in prayer? Daniel read and prayed. It's just a pattern, part of his daily rhythm. And those holy habits shaped his life, and they shaped his witness, and those spiritual disciplines are still essential for Christian discipleship and growth. So let's stand together for the public reading of God's nourishing word. In the first year of Darius, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, learned from the scriptures or understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God, and I pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth, in ashes, and I prayed to the Lord my God, and I confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We've been wicked. We've rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our ancestors and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we're covered with shame the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, and all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings and our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we've sinned against you. And the Lord our God is merciful and he's forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God. We've not kept his laws he has given us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we've sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster, under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God from, by turning from our sins and giving attention to the truth. And so the Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. We have sinned and we've done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away from your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now our God hear the prayers and petitions of your servant for your sake lord look with favor on your desolate sanctuary give ear our god and hear open our eyes and see the desolation desolation of the city that bears your name we do not make requests of you because we are righteous but because of your great mercy lord listen lord forgive lord hear and act for your sake my god do not delay because your city and your people bear your name While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of the people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I'd seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. And he instructed me and he said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding And as soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, and it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for the one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Phew, take a seat. Take a seat. And what I wanna do is I wanna start at the end. I wanna start with those last four verses. Because for a number of people, Daniel 9 is primarily about those 77s. And what do they mean? And what do they refer to? And who is involved? And when will it occur? Or when did it occur? And it's almost as if the first part of the chapter, the bulk of it, gets lost gets rushed past. But I want to park on the first part of the chapter. And so I'm going to start with a brief comment about those last four verses. And then I'm going to move on. Because I'm not sure I'm going to say anything more about them later on. So this may be it. And I realize, and I'm getting really good at this, I am gonna frustrate and disappoint a whole lot of people. People who were keen to hear my take. People who, whenever I said I'm gonna launch into this series said, can't wait till you get to Daniel chapter nine and I hear what you're gonna say about the seventy sevens. So I'm gonna frustrate some of you. And disappoint you as I am actually doing really good at it at the moment. About the seven sevens and the sixty two sevens and the one sevens. So I'm not going there. But in terms of the overall message of Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, here's the overall message in a nutshell. And I'm actually going to quote Dale Ralph Davis, highly respected, thoroughly sound professor, lecturer in Old Testament studies. Here is the message of those verses to Daniel. Here is the message of those verses to us. Here it is in a nutshell. You're called to a long obedience, Daniel, us. Your people will be sustained even in distressing times. And see the great hater of God's people. He sits in the crosshairs with the date of his demise clearly marked on God's calendar. And Dale Ralph Davis goes on to say, "You, you may have wished for more than that. But that is mostly what Daniel 9, 24 to 27 is about. And that is that. And I agree. And I frustrate you. (laughs) And so let's go back to the beginning. Because I want to park in the first 19 verses, because I really don't want to rush past this. Because for me, these are so important for us. See all of that other stuff? It's really important. God's got it sorted. People have never been able to sort it. People continue to debate and discuss what this means, what that means, when it's all gonna happen. Listen, God is in control. And what he's saying to us is, listen, dig in for the long obedience. You'll be sustained even through distressing times. I will sort out whoever rises up, whoever comes along, whoever dishonors my name, whoever attacks my holy people, I'll deal with them in my time. So verse one, where we are back in the first reign of Darius. And as Sarah said earlier, it's really important that we get this because what that means is this is roughly at the end of Israel's 70 years of exile in Babylon. And so a decree has gone out where some Judeans are being allowed to return to their homeland. And at this time, as you look at verse 1 or 2 there, it says Daniel is engaged. Daniel understands from the Scriptures as revealed to Jeremiah. And so we know Daniel is reading God's Word, and the specific text that he's reading is the prophecy of Jeremiah. And you can see from verse 2, he's reading the bit that relates to the fact that Jerusalem will be desolate for 70 years And if you're using any kind of study Bible, you'll notice that it directs you to Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29, because that's what it looks like. I know there weren't chapters in those days, but it looks like that's the part of the text he was reading which says this whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve Babylon for 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I'll punish the king of Babylon. I'll punish the nation. The land of the Babylonians will be punished for their guilt, declares the Lord, and it will be made desolate forever. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed from Babylon, I will come to you and I'll fulfill my promise to bring you back. And as Daniel reads Jeremiah's prophecy, he's inspired to pray. These promises of God that he's reading in God's word regarding restoration in 70 years, around this time, prompts Daniel to pray. They drive him to his knees. And it's this kind of promise to prayer pattern, this reading of Scripture and allowing it to stir us in our dialogue with God means that as Christians, we should let the Bible become our prayer book. Now, that's not a new thought. That's not a new idea. We've looked at this before. I've stressed it a number of times. But can I encourage you to go away from this morning? Kind of re-inspired to read Scripture and allow it to renew and refresh your prayer life. Because that is one of the reasons it's been given to us. So as we engage with God's word, as we feed on God's word, this living, this active word, that it will inspire us to pray. As Daniel reads, and he says, as he's inspired to pray, his response to God, I I do find, like Sarah, I do find his response Way of praying, incredibly challenging. So I turned to the Lord God. And I pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. And I know it would be easy, as I said, to to kind of rush even past this bit. And let's get to Daniel's prayer. Let's hear his prayer. But let me make a comment or two about fasting, which throughout Scripture often accompanies prayer. It's another one of those spiritual disciplines that as Christians we're encouraged to practice. And yet I reckon, and I'm speaking personally here. It's one of my least practiced spiritual disciplines. I was involved in something last week uh, where someone made the passing comment that they are fasting every Thursday during Lent. And I must admit, I sat there and I thought, you know, I found myself incredibly challenged about that and about this holy habit or about this lack of this holy habit in my life. And I'm I'm just being honest with you this morning. And as I went away from that event that I was involved in and I was speaking that along with others, I went back over a sermon that I shared here on the 15th of March, 2009. And it was on fasting. And as I read through what I shared with you as a church, I was again struck by the fact that there are 74 references to fasting in the Bible. There's apparently more teaching on fasting in the New Testament than on repentance and on confession. And Jesus himself appears to have offered more teaching on fasting than he did on baptism and on communion. Now, I am not for one minute suggesting fasting is more important than repentance and confession and baptism and communion. And you will hear me say more about that in a moment. But it's an interesting observation. And in his infamous so-called Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about fasting. He talked about it explicitly when he said to his disciples and those listening, when you fast, not if. It's not an optional extra. It's rather a given practice of Christian disciples. And it's a practice that was modeled for us by Jesus. Richard Foster, in his classic book, Celebration of Discipline, writing about fasting, actually lists the Bible characters who did it, including Moses the lawgiver, David the king, Elijah the prophet, Esther the queen, Daniel the seer, Anna the prophetess, Paul the apostle, and Jesus Christ, the incarnate son. Now, this is obviously not a sermon on fasting. But given what we read in Daniel 9, I wanted to mention it again And I wanted to encourage those of us who are Christians to consider it again if it's not part of your kind of rhythm and routine, or if you are in danger of losing it altogether from your spiritual formation. So question again, when was the last time you fasted and prayed? Fasting humbles us, tests us, teaches us. There are different kinds of fasts, there are medical issues to bear in mind, I know, but don't dismiss this practice as it's only for the likes of Anna and Daniel or Jesus. And although we're never commanded to do it, I don't want anybody to go away from here and say anything. There is no explicit command in the New Testament to fast, but it's definitely a legitimate and worthwhile biblical practice. I'll maybe come back to it in another six years seven years, but I'm still here. Daniel is on his knees and he's fasting and he's in an attitude of confession. And that's obvious from his apparel. He's in sackcloth and he's in ashes. He's invisible signs of repentance. But although the prayer that then proceeds is by and large a prayer of confession and it's a prayer of petition, don't miss how this prayer starts. Because again, here's a model to embrace and take away and adapt and adopt. Daniel starts with adoration. He begins his prayer by acknowledging who it is he's talking to. Before he proceeds with what he really wants to get to, to what he really wants to get off his chest, Daniel begins with these words of praise and recognition. And it's a model, again, that's often employed in Scripture. Even in that prayer of all prayers, the so-called Lord's Prayer, really a disciple's prayer, but the so-called Lord's Prayer. How does it start? It starts with adoration. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's the starting point. And it's a model that's been used all down through history, even that little simple acronym, ACTS, that some people have used for years in structuring their prayer lives. How does it start with A? With adoration. So look at how Daniel's prayer starts in verse 4. Oh, Lord, you are great. You are a great and you're an awesome, another word for that, you're a fearful God. You always fulfill your covenant. You always keep your promises of unfailing love to those who love you and obey your commands. And up front what Daniel does before he gets to what he wants, before he gets off his chest, what he needs to get off his chest, he affirms God's greatness. He affirms God's vastness and power. He affirms his faithfulness, his dependability. He affirms God's love. That's such an important balance to retain in our prayer lives. And as you look at the rest of Daniel's prayer in a little more detail, you actually discover that expressions of praise and adoration are peppered right throughout it. Verse 7, you are righteous, Lord. Even as he's offloading, you're righteous, Lord. Verse nine: oh Lord, the Lord our God is merciful and he's forgiven. Praise keeps rising. But from verses 5 to 14, Daniel's solemn and deeply moving prayer of confession spills out. And right from the word go that there's no duck in anything. There's no downplaying the situation. There's no diluting what is really happening. In verse five, Daniel names it and he names it strongly. We've sinned. I hope you got this as I tried to read through it. We've sinned. We've done wrong. We're wicked. We've rebelled. We've turned away. We've not listened. He's nailing it. He's not trying to avoid it. He's not trying to cover anything up. He's not trying to reduce anything or minimize anything. He gets it right out there. And again, it's another amazing example of how we should approach God in prayer and how we should dialogue with God we should be honest with God we should be open before God we should be direct with God but maybe what is particularly striking here is the inclusive language Daniel isn't standing pointing any fingers he includes himself and I find this humbling and I find this challenging because we all know Daniel was a man of prayer Daniel was such a godly individual Daniel desired more than anything else for God's honor And yet here he is saying, we, we, including myself, we have sinned, we've done wrong. We have been wicked, we have rebelled. And I wonder, is there ever a time when I should do this? when although I may not be directly or personally involved in specific sin or wickedness or rebellion, but I'm part of a community that is. And therefore, I share some of the responsibility. I share some of the responsibility to cry out to God, God, forgive us. God, have mercy on us. Daniel includes himself here. And based on verse 13 of the second half of it, you see and you discern what is Daniel's main main concern. And what it is 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 the people's attitude. Because there's no sense of guilt in terms of the people, there is no desire to turn from their sin and turn to God. There's no grief. There's no anxiety. There's no tears. There's no sackcloth. There's no ashes. There's no fasting. Over there, idolatry. There's no exercise in repentance. But it's not an Israel-only problem. It's a human thing. Humanity in general is adverse to admitting sin and guilt. Call anyone a sinner today. You will get a negative reaction. But you know what one of the primary marks of a Christian, one of the primary marks of an authentic Christian is that he or she recognizes their sin and laments it, breaks them, breaks them. So how's our hearts this morning? I know only God sees them our hearts. Here's a great quote. What distinguishes us from the world? It's not that we're less wicked, but that by the grace of God, we've learned to see our wickedness for what it is and that we confess our sins. The church is the only body on earth that confesses sin You're part of a rotary club, part of a sports club, part of any kind of social club. It's not a lot of confession of sin goes on. And where confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer. It's a pretty strong comment. It's probably a little exaggerated. But maybe it's partly true. And for Daniel, that's where he was at. That's how he felt. This community, and remember, this was a community of God's people. They had gone through so much disaster. To quote the first part of verse 13, this was a people without a home. This was a people without a temple. This was a people without freedom. But what was wrecked in Daniel's heart is this was a people without repentance. And so he turns from his confession. And he turns to petition. And in verse 15, for five verses, he pleads with God. And he asks God to turn away from his anger, turn away his wrath from Jerusalem. He asks God, please, God, will you hear our prayers? I know we've not listened to you, but will you hear our prayers? But not because any of us deserve this. None of us deserve this. None of us are righteous. But Daniel asks this Because of God's great mercy. Verse 18. This is one of the reasons why every time, very often, whenever we pray from the frontier, we finish our prayers. In your mercy, Lord. Hear our prayers. In your mercy, Lord. Not because of us, but in your mercy. But look at the last verse of this prayer, verse 19. Where it seems to reach almost fever pitch as the prayer sounds staccato like Lord, listen, Lord, forgive, Lord hear, and act. Daniel is desperate for this, but then we gain a critical insight into his motivation and his ultimate concern. Look at the last sentence. For your sake, please get this. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Daniel effectively appeals to God's reputation because Daniel knows. Do you know something? It's God's honor that's at stake here. Daniel hates to see God's reputation rubbished. He hates to see God's name dishonored, and therefore he pleads with God to reverse all of this and to restore his renown and his name, and genuine believers will always and must always have that concern close to their hearts. That is what should, that is what can drive our prayers. When God's people mess up, When God's people's behavior and attitude and words and actions let them down, when they hurt others, when it creates dysfunction and disunity and distress, yes, it rattles us. It's ultimately God's reputation that suffers. It's God's name that gets dragged through the mud. And so we pray, Oh, Lord, restore the honor of your name in that marriage. Restore the honor of your name in that relationship. Restore the honor of your name in that church. Restore the honor of your name in that situation. It's such an important prayer for God's sake. For your sake, God. For your name. And so Daniel's exemplary prayer is over. But forever it stands as a blueprint, a layout to guide our praying. And so this morning as we go from here, I invite each of us to take it to heart and to draw on these lessons. Let scripture prompt your prayers. Adapt the promise to prayer pattern. Consider fasting alongside prayer at times. Don't neglect this other holy habit. Make adoration your starting point in all praying. Lose yourself in wonder, love, and praise. Name and confess sin consistently, regularly, openly. And whatever we ask for, look to and appeal to God's mercy. And seek the reputation of God and the honor of his name in your praying and in your living.